Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I'm talking to Adele Bates, who is a behaviour and education specialist. First off, Adele's book that we will be talking about uh, does have a swear word in the title. So we referenced that a couple of times, but don't worry, it's nothing extreme. I really enjoyed my conversation with Adele. Um, She's got some colourful stories talking about her experiences in, in mainstream and alternative provision, but she's got some really practical advice as well about how you can tackle behaviour in in your own way, um, rather than necessarily kind of copying any particular model. You can find your own kind of confident, authentic way to do behaviour, which is really interesting. And I hope you enjoy the podcast too. As ever, the It's an opportunity for us to open up debate and discussion about topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth, authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today I am joined by Adele Bates, who is a behaviour and education specialist, keynote speaker and author. Uh, Hello, Adele. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. We're going to talk today about about behaviour and your book, Miss I Don't Give a Shit. Uh, (laughs) So um, yeah, looking forward to talking about that in a bit more detail. But can we kick off with you telling us a bit about yourself and your background? Yes, of course. So I began teaching when I was about 12 years old. (laughs) I ended up... um, teaching violin to a a younger friend and basically since then I haven't stopped teaching so that's over 20 years Um, at the age of 14 I set up a drama school for primary school aged pupils Um, that was before DBS this was the 90s yeah Um, (laughs) and we put them through shows they did exams we did everything I I look at 14 year olds now and I think goodness me type A Um, and my first career I was an opera singer and I worked in the theatre and alongside that I was always working um, through performing arts with young people and I kept finding myself in PRUs, people referral units, APs, alternative provisions and I just loved how performing arts worked for um, people, young people with behaviour needs and then I got to a certain point where um, I mean, if, for the listener, uh, you may or may not know what the operatic industry is like. Uh, it's a little bit not fun in lots of ways. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> so I discovered that I was having way more fun with the kids and I loved being with them. So I got to a point where I thought, OK, let's get my PGC under my belt because I've been working in schools by that time for years. But, you you know, mm. you kind of need to get that under your belt. So I looked at the government who was in charge at that time and their opinion of the arts was quite low and the importance they gave to it was quite low. So I decided to train um, in English because that was I had an A-level in it. And so I, I became an English teacher because I decided I would probably be more employable. And then I spent a few years working in mainstream as a, an English class teacher. But I always knew that I would end up back in people referral units, alternative provisions, SEMH schools, so schools for young people with social, emotional, mental health issues. 
And then I got to a stage where, yeah, I'm going to tell you this story. It's quite honest. Um, so I was working in a mainstream and I was always known for being um, one of those teachers. One of my skill sets is about building relationships and safe communities. I was, um, I supported and looked after the LGBT um, plus community at lunchtimes. I had my Amnesty International Club, which was amazing. The kids used to write to presidents across the world for human rights. And I would spend a lot of time doing pastoral. And I was working in one school where I was called in by the head teacher in this mainstream school. And he sat me down and he said, Adele, you're doing too much pastoral. And at that point, I knew that I was in the wrong place because what I was experiencing were young people who were spending their lunch times with their teacher. And I'm not that cool. And that was telling me something. These young people needed safe spaces to talk about issues, things that were going through, whatever it was. And the fact that that school's philosophy felt that that was too much uh, made me realize I wasn't in the right place. So I stepped out uh, to become freelance and I had a choice um, at that moment um, of whether to uh, continue doing um, support and training around LGBT awareness in schools or human rights or behavior so was, I kind of sat there with this conundrum I was doing supply at the time and I was like okay where do I want to put my efforts and um, I came to behavior because I feel that in this country not everywhere at all but in this country the LGBT education is going fairly well and in, in what I consider to be a good direction um, and then I, I trained with Amnesty International in their education department they have a fantastic course by the way if anyone's interested and um, I kind of looked at that side as well but then I kept coming back to behavior because of all those experiences I'd had years ago working in those crews and working with those younger people and then I looked and I realized that most people talking and training around behavior um, are people who slip into the demographic of people like my dad. Um, they are men who are um, a bit older than me. And I felt that I had the potential here to give uh, a different perspective and a different voice to behavior and to allow teachers and teaching staff to you know invite them into saying okay how do you do behavior we don't all do behavior in the same way and I think that just by the fact that I am female and I mean some people call me young the teach the pupils don't but um, <laughs> I can confirm to the listener Adele is very <laughs> youthful looking. I'm 36 years old um so so this kind of then that kind of brewed with me and I thought okay yes because I, I have always enjoyed working with these young people and even when I was in mainstream I often used to get sent like I used to get sent the kids who were struggling in the different classes for behavior and they would be sent to Miss Bates's class and I thought actually this feels like a really exciting challenge and this is what I want to do um so that's brought me to today so now I work in mainstream schools and I work in special schools and alternative provisions and I really see myself as a bridge between the two in terms of practice because um I've I find that in alternative provisions there is some fantastic practice going on and I believe that if more of that practice and more of that support and training was given to teachers in mainstream we would have fewer children being excluded so that is where I sit in between the two I work in both settings still um, supporting staff working with school leaders and local authorities 
on what does inclusion look like? What does SEMH inclusion look like? Um, how are we supporting behavior needs? And most importantly, in a sustainable way for the staff who've got to do it during <laughs> a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's where I am at right now. Yes, and um, we talk. We talked on the podcast um, before, really, about the um, you know the, the the sort of alternative provision, mainstream divide, working together yeah. more more closely these days than than has been the case uh, traditionally, perhaps. But but also this this idea of. Um, a different different skill sets different kind of a, a, you know people mm-hmm. in 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 each one and that you know you you can't necessarily uh if you have to be a sort of this good at, good at behavior person in in the peru and that in the in the in the mainstream you go well this child is um behaving in a way that i can't manage i'm moving them over here and yes. and, and that means that that you know there is a bit of a block to that to that mm-hmm. learning going going across i think you've you've given us a really clear um, sort of a journey through understanding how you decided to to specialize in behavior and I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting what you say there as well um, about uh, your sort of uh, your, your characteristics as an individual as opposed to this maybe idea of of, of, of what the person who who leads on behavior um, might be like in terms of their own kind of personal um, you know appearance stature yes. standing etc and I think you know, there's that phrase isn't there about um, they behave for me uh kind yes. of thing and this idea that um you know some people are the kind of no nonsense teacher that just mm-hmm. everybody regardless of, of how they behave in other classes will, will crack on and work for and that mm-hmm. you know sometimes as a, as a as a teacher uh you can feel a bit sort of oh it's it's because people see see me as a kind of i don't know not yes. a, as able to keep keep control because mm-hmm. of my um yes. my approach and 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 and, what, and it's interesting to learn more about what you're saying there that you don't have to pretend to be somebody oh, else. Yes, absolutely. So I I talk about this in the book. There's a chapter called "Don't Take It Personally," <laughs> which is exactly this kind of thing. And I'd love to share a story at this point, if that's okay. Yes, please do. Um, so I was I think it was my NQT. Year. I was in a school where there was this man who. Um, was the one who kind of looked after the nurture group and we all know know, we all know what nurture group really means yeah Um, (laughs) it's the children who may end up on the ceiling uh, 37 minutes into the class Um, so I went to observe him because I knew that you know he had a really good reputation for really supporting these young people with behavior needs and I went into his classroom he was incredible it's one of the most astounding lessons I've ever seen he was like a zen monk his voice remained quiet and slow at all times his instructions were clarity itself he did not smile throughout the whole lesson he very calmly but beautifully praised these teenagers and the entire lesson was just calm and focused and it it was it was like watching magic and as I was still training I had been to watch this during one of my PPA times my um my preparation times so I then went back to my year eight class and I decided that's it you know I need to be like him so I walked in 
and I attempted <laughs> to be still and quiet and really reduce the amount of words I was using. And this year eight class walked over me entirely. <laughs> absolute disaster they were really loud they were really chatty it did not work at all and it was it was the best lesson for me because I came out going of course it didn't work for me because that's not who I am I I am full of energy and I do move about and we will get the desks out and make a mountain out of the people and etc uh, etc et that's how I teach and so because I was trying to be somebody else for behavior's sake the kids saw right through it. And if you work with young people from alternative provisions, they will tell you in four letter words what they think of it. And this also goes along with like, I've got colleagues who are very cool and they're like fist pumps, high mm. five. High five's probably out of fashion. I don't know. Um, because when I try to do that, I sound like Julie Andrews pretending to be Ali G. It doesn't work. <laughs> and the, again, the kids see straight through it. And so... The lesson I learned from that was so valuable because one, I learned that I, I can't be like him. Like the way you do behavior is going to be different from the way I do behavior. And that doesn't mean I can't learn. And what I did learn from him is the very, very occasional time where I become completely still and have that kind of very quiet approach. If I pepper that, in some of my delivery of my lessons or some of the behavior conversations I'm having, oh, does it have impact? Because it, it gives me um, a bigger toolbox. And that's my approach to behavior. There is no one way to do behavior. If there was one way to do behavior, we'd have all solved it by now and our prisons would be empty. That's not the case. And in one way, that's really frustrating. In another way, it's brilliant. Behavior is all about context. Uh, I'm sure to the listener, you will have experienced that behavior is different during a global pandemic to when we're not. And the idea that there's one way to approach that and it will work for all of our kids across the country, it just, it, it really drives me batty. And that is a rhetoric that's coming from government. It's a rhetoric that's coming from the Department of Education. It's a rhetoric that's coming from media even more, um, but obviously just stirs it all up. And sometimes it, it gives us this um, idea that there's this kind of binary, you do behavior like this or that, and that's all you can do. And that's a great, great disservice to our teaching staff. Because then if I sit there and I look up and think, okay, well, this is how I'm supposed to be, do behavior. This is who I'm supposed to be. If I then can't do that, I think, oh, there's something wrong with me. Mm. And if I'm stood in front of 33 teenagers thinking oh, there's something wrong with me, that's not a good place to start from. <laughs> I need to have confidence in my own abilities within the classroom. So when I support staff, so when I'm training staff in the book, in my behavior membership that I have online, I'm all, my focus is always what's going to work for you? What's going to work for you? And yes, we also have behavior policies that we have to adhere to. Um, and so I'm not kind of suggesting we all become anarchist mavericks mm. unless, unless that works for you in your context yeah i'm i'm all about helping and supporting staff to just increase the tools in their toolbox and then the skill i believe as an educator is knowing which tool is suitable for which people at which time 
So one question I get asked often is this idea of like, oh, do you believe in discipline and rope learning and that kind of thing? And I say, well, look, I used to be an opera singer. I was in operas that were four hours long in, in a language that I, don't, that I don't speak. You cannot learn an opera through creative group work. You, can, you cannot learn four hours of Italian when you don't speak Italian um, through, through that. So I had to do disciplined rote learning. Sometimes that is useful. And on the flip side, if I want to work out how to stop a war, or maybe how to have a negotiation with another country about immigration policies, then it's teamwork I need, then it's negotiation skills I need, then it's relationship building that I need. And so, yeah, my approach is to behavior and the staff that I support, let's give you as many tools as possible and then let's work out when's the best time to use it for each situation. Yeah, that's, that's really some really fascinating things kind of um, and sparking off lots of ideas at my end, I, I, particularly given your experience in the performing arts. It really makes me think about um, an actor, really, and mm. saying, you know, you can have the role of teacher, different actors are going to play it in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, good acting or engaging acting is somebody who changes the, the pitch of what they're doing, depending mm -hmm. on the emotions of the scene. If somebody comes on and shouts and screams for three hours on a stage, that's very boring mm -hmm. and everybody, you've lost them. <laughs> you know, when are they going to get completely quiet and still draw, draw in? Um, and when is it about just getting the story mm -hmm. out or getting the, you know, a different emotion out? And it, yeah, it really, really makes me, me think about that, the way you're talking about, um, you know, as you say, varying things up, switching your, switching your, your tone and, and, and then also thinking about um, behavior as, um, you know, depending on what you're doing around the curriculum, the the style of lesson you want to have, mm -hmm. the subject you teach, mm. and 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 getting to know what will what will work in those in those situations. Yes. As you say, sometimes you have you have just got to learn some some stuff. Yes. And that's going to seem more dry. Yes. Sometimes you have to hold a mock exam. Mm. And English GCSE exams are two hours and forty five minutes long. So I need to provide an environment that mm. is useful for my young people to know what silence is to know what writing for two hours and 45 minutes is um so yeah sometimes that is needed and going back to your other point as well about um about how we are in different spaces i had a great conversation recently with yamina bibi who is um an assistant head teacher in london i'm gonna say I think London and she also does a lot of work with women ed and a lot of work around leadership and coaching particularly um, for female um, school leaders of color and she said it wasn't until she worked out her own um, self-awareness and superpower that she was able to deal with behavior because in the um, area that she is teaching there is a high percentage of British Asian students and she is British Asian, right? So she looks like, sounds like, has a cultural background that's more similar to a lot of the students in her school. And she said at first she was almost pretending she didn't have that because that's the way she'd seen it happen before. That's, that's the way she'd seen other teachers teach because the majority of our teachers in this country are white. And, and then when she realised, hang on a minute, I look like these children's parents, aunties, cousins, etc., she realized her relationship with them 
was the thing that was going to help her with her behavior. And I think that's such a useful conversation to have because I get um, asked quite often now for sc in schools, they say to me, all of our NQTs are women in their 20s. They're kind of, you know, 21, 22. Um, they need to work out how they do behavior. Not, you know, as I was talking about before, not emulating a different one. And then whatever minority you have or whatever difference you have, because we all have differences, we all have different things. Um, I was just speaking to a, a teacher recently who was saying he, um, for him, it was really challenging one school because he was the only bold man. Nobody else was a bold man. You know, we all have our things, whatever they are. And so this is why for me, it's so um, so much more useful, actually, if we, find if we find a way to approach behavior that works for us, that's sustainable and that doesn't lead to burnout because we're trying to do some kind of approach or something that's not, not doesn't work for us. Yeah, so as you say, find your find your superpower and, and view it that way rather than thinking that that's the thing that that makes you kind of different mm -hmm. and is a in it could be a challenge. Um, great stuff. Well, um, I I, I'm, I I'd like to come on a, a bit more to to the the book. And as we as we mentioned up top, there's a swear in the title, uh, we've got, and Miss I don't give a shit is a very evocative phrase. <laughs> I think it all puts us in uh, in mind of, of of similar situations that people might have encountered. But why was it important to you to pick such a confrontational mm -hmm. title? Because we've got student voice right there at the front at the top. This is what it's like, and. I was very aware, as were my publishers, that this title could put certain people off um, wanting to read the book. And I had to make the decision and say, OK, then that this isn't the book for them. Um, but I have read uh, not all, but a lot of behaviour books, journals, articles. Um, that's my hobby. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it I find not just in education, but also kind of articles around social work and and kind of approaches in health and psychology and psychiatry, the behavior gets pathologized quite often. Um, if I said that right, I never know if I've said that word right, pathologize. Yeah, Is that right? yeah. yeah. thank you. Um, <laughs> and so for me, it was so important that this book is for people who work in the classroom, people who work in schools, leaders who are there with the kids every day dealing with it. Um, this is not a book about um kind of a remote a philosophical theory about things this is here's the theory here are the conversations we're having these are the things that could work here are some of the things that work for me here are some of the things where i did completely fell flat on my mm. face um and so the title really really for me encaptures the the flavor what is it like to work with young people who have behavior needs well it's kind of like that and it was also really important for me to have the word miss in there, just for what we've talked about before, um, that there are so few female um, educators talking publicly or supporting or working with schools um, around behaviour. And so the fact that it's got miss in there is, I mean, that is that really puts it in a time and a place. And it really puts it with the majority of our workforce. The majority is still female. And the leadership is still majority male, but the majority of people in the classroom with these kids are female. And so it was it was both those things. Then um, I had to get it through the publishers and the proposal and, and et cetera. And the the review team. So there's like when you put a book in, then you have this review team who tell the publishers 
if they think this person should write this book. It's very scary. And they all came back and just went, yes, because if you read that title, you know that this book is going to be someone who has been in the classroom, who knows what it's like, and it's going to be practical, which was really good. Um, and then I had to tell my mom. <laughs> And that was like the scariest bit. I was like, Mom, I've got the proposal, I'm gonna write a book. She's like, Oh, that's good. And so I said, Yeah. I said, though, um, there's a naughty word in the title. <laughs> so I was more scared about telling my mum than anything else. I've never heard my mum say my book's title. Oh. Um and then and then on the other side of that, we had to have something to ground it. So engaging with challenging behaviour in schools is the tagline. And then you see there's so much in this title. You can tell I'm an English teacher, can't you? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be analysing the commas in a second. Um, so the other side of this title is that phrase, and this this is I talk about this right in the front of the book. That phrase, Miss I Don't Give a Shit, it it has as many meanings as there are pupils. And this really goes along with my approach to behaviour. That sometimes a kid might just need a reminder of the rules. Sometimes they might need some kind of consequence to help them kind of remember that. Sometimes, Miss, I don't give a shit is go away because I'm scared of fading. Sometimes it's Miss, I can't read and I don't want you to find out. So if I'm aggressive to you, you're going to not want to be around me and you won't find out I read. Sometimes, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many um, permutations of what that could mean and what you do about it. And I think this is another thing that comes up in the book a lot is that there isn't a kind of quick fix Some, sometimes the trainees say to me things like what do i do when a kid swears <laughs> it's like well <laughs> where is that swearing coming from what does it mean is it you know i mean i've i've seen kids who've done really well in exams go hmm. yeah. that's amazing well i'm yeah. not going to give them attention they've just done amazing in their exam that is an expression yeah. of joy i yes and i might also go can we can we pick a more radio friendly word to express that mm. next time and uh, can you think of 10 words that you could use as an alternative um so yeah the the title was it was really about saying this is what it's like in the classroom this is what it's like in our school corridors and how do we actually physically deal with it how do real life um teaching staff and pupils work and and that's what the, the kind of approach to the book was uh, as you say there's a lot there's a lot to unpack from that title personally i just really like the way that you've got that sort of vestige of, of pol polite in that they yes. have said miss yes. um, um they sort of know that that's important um but but i think what it does is it definitely piques the interest in the reader because it's a sort of okay that's been said now what what do i do Where what do I is my response exactly. and exactly. and turn to your to your book exactly and if uh, people follow me on twitter so i'm at adele bates z adele bates z i have um what i call hashtag insult of the week and these are hilarious brilliant <laughs> Uh, things that my delightful cherubs have said to me over the years and we kind of collect them and people share them on Twitter and it's there's two layers to this one of the one of the layers is just isn't that hilarious and let's you know let's all laugh about it I mean I think one that I shared recently was um miss uh there's no point in hello today because I'm not up for learning <laughs> you know it's things like that that they say there's a deeper side to this and this is also what I support within my behaviorship community online in my membership is that yes we can most of the time take these insults and go haha teenagers or or kids or whatever 
and sometimes they hurt sometimes those insults hurt and how do we look after ourselves in that and one of the ways we can is by sharing with each other that actually these things happen and knowing it's not personal and that's what I love about um uh obviously on Twitter kind of publicly but within my community is that we get to do that we get to go oh my goodness you know I got locked in a cupboard oh hang on I got locked in a cupboard two years ago and (laughs) it doesn't mean you're a bad teacher it doesn't mean you shouldn't be teaching um these things do happen in certain settings and and that that's okay so that insult of the week that's kind of um also where the title came from at the start of every chapter I share one of these insults of the week and invite the readers to do the same as well so if you have any insults of the week hashtag then please do share them with us Get, get your insults out. Lovely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm getting getting a sense here about about, um, you know, why you wanted to 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 write the book and and some of the sort of um, myths and, and misconceptions that you kind of wanted to, to bust. But maybe you could you could tell us a little bit a bit more about about that. Mm, yes. So one of the gaps that I see in the education system is that when I work with mainstream staff, 99.9% of teaching staff want to do well for all their pupils. And I feel there is a massive gap um, when it comes to behaviour and supporting the needs of behaviour. So I often talk as SEMH, social, emotional, mental health issues. Um, You may also come across that as EBD, emotional behavioural difficulties. I often see that there's a misconception around that and that staff don't feel they have the skills perhaps to support that in the same way as they might for another learning need. So I talk about SEMH as an SEND. It is a learning need. There is a barrier to learning. And it's really challenging because let's say a kid does have dyslexia or ADHD or autism or or something that we perhaps recognize, um, you know, that has been given a label and you have had training on then you're more likely to be able to support it and know those needs. Whereas with behavior, let's go back to what I was saying about, um, miss, don't don't come near me. I don't want you to find out I can't read, right? So the behavior comes out. And if we're not careful, we only deal with the behavior. And whilst that might work short term, it doesn't get to the root of it. So for example, I might have a kid who throws their book at me So I deal with that. You shouldn't throw things at teachers. You're being defiant, behavior point rules, whatever it is that I need to do as part of the behavior policy. But what I'm not really getting to, if I only deal with that surface stuff, is why is the kid throwing the book? Is it because they can't read? And if so, that's my job. My job is to support that young person with reading. And so I have to find a way of removing barriers so that we can get to it. So there's an analogy that I use sometimes about going to the doctors. So if you and I go to the doctors, we've both got a headache and let's say we get given a paracetamol. I don't know. Apologies to any doctors listening if that is inaccurate. Um, But let's say a pill. Right. And that may work temporarily. That might that might get rid of the symptoms. However, my um, headache could be because I'm premenstrual. And it's part of my symptom. Your headache might be because you had a really good night last night and uh, you're a little bit hungover. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yes, that paracetamol, that pill may um, deal with the initial symptom. But the reason why we're getting the headaches is still left unresolved, unsupported. 
And so you can see how this works with behavior. A detention, for example, a really classic consequence, might be really useful for one kid to go, oh yeah, actually, you know what? I really do need to focus on my learning in science and stop getting distracted and try to gas everyone with a Bunsen burner. I've learned my lesson, fair enough. But for another kid, that might that might not work. And I would argue it works for actually quite a small percentage of students because our education system is made for particular types of students. And I know that because I was one of those students. Um, it's the, Our education system is created for children who have steady home lives, who um, are supported at home, who have access to um, certain kind of academic support. Our education system is um, academic focused and so you know as a person myself who was quite good academically had a good steady home life um, I achieved really really well in that education system whereas with some of the young people I work with they don't have that support at home or there are some mental health issues going on or there's a bereavement going on or like you know just insert anything and at that point the education system doesn't work and so I think coming back to your question about what myths was I trying to bust? It It is that idea that behavior is like this different thing or something. No, it's just a barrier to learning. It's just a barrier to learning. So we need to differentiate it for it. I have a blog post, you can go and have a look, uh, differentiation for SEMH. So how do, because if it was, let's say if it was a pupil who had dyslexia, we would have strategies of how to differentiate the learning so that that child can access education. My approach is we do the same with behavior needs and SEMH, social, emotional, mental health issues. So it might be a really small one that if I sit a young person by the window, it makes them agitated, it makes them scared, it makes them nervous, it makes them fidgety. And if you're feeling that, what are you going to do? You're going to reach out to your friend. You're going to try and have a chat. You're going to fiddle with a stapler and break it. You're going to try and get away from that window. So all the differentiation I need to do is not put that kid by that window. But I can only do that if I know what the root cause is. And there is a line to this. Like We don't need to know the entire history of every student, every single kid's favourite football or hockey team. We don't need to know... Or, by the way, a complete aside, we're recording this on the 1st of December. England just won 20 nil to Latvia. Women's brilliant. Anyway, um, you, we don't need to know all these in, you know, ins and outs completely of the child, but we do need to remain curious. That's interesting. Sadia is usually fine in my lesson, and yet today she hasn't done any work. Why? Because if I know why, I know how to then build up um, the learning and the pedagogy and the the strategies and the scaffolding to help her. And that might look like a broken down worksheet of the task. It might also look like a conversation with her about what's going on at home. It might also look like um, some restoration work between her and a friend who've just fallen out. All of those things are still barriers to learning. And it's my job as an educator, I believe, to remove those barriers. And so this is is really the kind of topics that, we're, that we, uh, we go through in the book. 
Yeah, and I think yeah, so 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 interesting that that example you gave um, around the kind of paracetamol and 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 the headache, and I think you know especially um, say in 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 my version, it was a self-inflicted. You know, I there's something I could do. I could not drink so much the next time. You know, that's that's much more within my power than 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 a, a, a situation or an example where there's a kind of external stressor or there's you know there's um there's 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 a, a need or or a problem that is not that is not being supported um that's mm. going to continue to to sort of rumble on i would also argue though that for some people that that I, you know i'm glad that that is in within your capability that you would be able to kind of not drink as much but for some people then we look at what you know what what's causing the drinking yeah if that's a a, a repeated thing and then back in the classroom you can see it with the kids why are they why are they getting in fights a lot yeah uh, why why have they started smoking weed um you know those kind of questions are very useful to be asking um interestingly just as a complete aside often um young people who start smoking weed many of them we find out later do have adhd or similar and so that smoking weed is like a self-medication mm. not obviously not all cases not all the time yeah. but it's just interesting to remain curious what's this behavior telling us what's this behavior telling us about this child their state of mind their ability to learn and how can we support them and differentiate or um, remove the barriers so that they can access their education and actually that sort of uh, um, thinking about the the sort of example of, of maybe somebody indulging too much or getting involved in in in, in weed or whatever is that um there's there's the peer effect um yes. as well you can look at you can look at individuals how mm. and why they might be, be behaving the way that they are but recognize that you know they're not always lone actors yes <laughs> um so absolutely. there's 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 many many layers there and i think we're mm-hmm. kind of touching on an area that I, that i wanted to explore a bit more with you around um you know schools behavior management policies and i was i was looking at some uh, stats from teacher tap uh, the other week and I, without reeling out lots of statistics i think i can summarize by saying that when classroom teachers were asked about their schools behavior management policy um, fewer of them found it kind of usable, fair, reasonable, these kinds of things. And obviously, mm-hmm. the further you go up the leadership scale, uh, head teachers say, yes, our behaviour management policy is fair to students and usable and um, all, all, all these kinds of things. So what, what do you what do you think about this kind of um, potential gap that, that, that could be opening up in some places between, you know, mm. this is the policy, this is what everybody does, and it's fair because the same thing happens to everybody um, mm-hmm. versus the kind of classroom teacher who's actually dealing with it day to day? That's a really good question. So behaviour policies need to be living documents and they will change. They need to change because our communities change, our societies change, our contexts change um and so the idea and this is the mistake i see up and down the country that there's somebody who is not on the front line who is asked to write behavior policy doesn't make any sense Mm. (laughs) so i have a chapter on leadership and school-wide approaches to behavior and we unpick exactly this and when i'm supporting a school with their behavior policy what we do first of all is think okay who are the key stakeholders in this 
it's the pupils, it's the classroom teacher, it's the teaching assistants, it's the lunchtime supervisors. Classic point where behavior goes whoopsie doodle. Okay, so if you're gonna write a behavior policy that's actually useful, you need those people to be part of that process. And I go even further than that. I will specifically ask schools to look at their data and to look at that, whatever percentage it is, depending on what setting you're in, of the kids who are more known for their behavior, who get the more behavior points, they are the ones who need to be in that discussion. Yes, appropriately. I'm not suggesting they run the whole um, the whole behavior policy, but then you start to understand why certain things in the behavior policy aren't working. Why are these kids getting repeat offences? And what is your school doing about that? How is your school preventing these kids stepping into exclusion? We know um, that once a child is excluded, they their chances of getting those five um, GCSEs, A to C, A star to C, old money, uh, what we are now, level nine to five, um, new money, um, re reduces dramatically. Their chances of go getting involved in gangs, crimes, um, and going to prison goes up a ridiculous amount and um i have discovered one statistic that um once a child is excluded they cost the country three hundred and seventy thousand pounds now i'm not quite sure how that's been worked out but what i'm saying here is like if we can create a behavior policy that works then we can prevent these kind of things happening in the first place so you've got to get your stakeholders in um and it is, it's it's kind of the, the downfall of leadership, isn't it? And I, you know, I know this myself. Once you are in a position of leadership, you are less likely to be on the floor. Um, and so this is about, um, in my opinion, it's about leading with integrity and leading for the good of the community as opposed to leading because I think it's right. And as a leader, we need to be challenged and and we can still sometimes overrule because we are, you know, we're in that position for a reason. And maybe we can see things that people on the floor can't. But if we're not having the conversations with the people on the floor, with the pupils, with the lunchtime supervisors, then how are we going to know if it works? And the thing is, and I see this in schools everywhere, sometimes a behavior policy, um, leadership believe that it's working. On the ground, it's really not. And so if it's not, then what do you get? Then you get rebelling. And then that's when it gets harder for consistency across your school with behavior because everybody knows the behavior policy doesn't work. So they're all having to weave around it and find different ways to um, support behavior needs. And so then what that means for the pupils is that from one class to another, there's slightly different um, rules or thresholds, let's say, you know, in, in so-and-so's class, you can do this and get away with it, but in so-and-so's class, you can't. And then, then you get more problems. And then what's really detrimental I've seen happen is that unfortunately schools then think, okay, then we need to get stricter on the behavior policy. There is no point, there's absolutely no point having a document that is uber, uber strict if your staff are not equipped, are not trained, are not supported to look after those behavior needs. Because you can tell me, that when the class come in, they need to be completely silent and that will, you know, and everybody's focused. Now, number one, a silent class does not mean they're learning. It means they're complying. Compliance and learning are very different things. So that might not be useful in my drama lesson, for example. So already I'm having to go against behavior policy because I'm teaching drama. And why would I want them all to come in and be absolutely silent 
when actually what I need them to do is a vocal warm up. Okay, so that's the first one. But secondly, I might, you know, I might be a teacher who struggles to get silence in my classroom. And then because the behavior policy is telling me I'm, I've got to do it and I have to punish anybody who doesn't do it, then suddenly it comes back onto it and I see this up and down the country, teaching staff who blame themselves. Mm. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be teaching. Um, I can't control the class. I've got no idea what to do. It's nine times out of 10 is because they haven't been given that support and the strategy and training to do it. And... <sighs> So why would you expect them to? Um, it's oh. yeah, no, it's, yeah, and it's tricky. And as you say, from a from a senior leader's perspective, somebody who's experienced and also yeah. in the position that they're in in the school, you know, it's a bit like if the head teacher comes to observe your lesson, mm-hmm. um, the children think they're being watched and behave <laughs> um, because you can't appreciate what the impact, you know, their personal mm-hmm. presence creates a different environment um so yeah I think it it must be difficult to sort of put themselves back into the shoes sometimes of of Mm. somebody starting out on their teaching career and 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 I guess it's also about what what are you aiming for because you know consistency could just mean that everybody has reasonable expectations about what a lesson at the school feels like what it's like to be in the corridors and 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 all of those kinds of of things rather than um there's a sort of robotic response mm-hmm. or approach to everything that then happens within mm. that because one is about uh, you know a contract among a community of people mm. like this is this is how we behave here and we behave yes. to each other and then the you know then there's something that sort of goes over into actually you as a teacher as we were talking about your your individual um nature and your authenticity um is is mm. is compromised in some ways because you feel like you have to follow follow this script um yes. so what if if you if if you are in a situation as a as a, as a teacher or even a school leader and you kind of fear that your behavior policy might might not be be working um we obviously talked a little bit about about kind of stakeholder involvement about that but kind of mm. What, what what would your advice be um, in general around that piece of work? Yes. So in the book, I, I share lots of kind of practical strategies of how to do this, particularly if you're trying to engage stakeholders. Let's say you're the head teacher and you're trying to engage the lunchtime supervisor staff. That's a tricky dynamic. And I think what you said about being senior a senior leader observing actually goes the same for the staff. Um, it might be that you've never spoken to the, some of the lunchtime supervisors if you're a big school. And it might be, you know, statistically, lunchtime supervisors are more likely to be using English as a second language, for example. Um, and the way that you set up how that communication starts is really important. If you go up to somebody who you've never met and you are a senior leader and you say, what do you think of the behavior policy? Um, most people's natural instinct will be, oh, yeah, I mean, it's OK. <laughs> because they won't know what it means to suggest difference or to suggest that things are wrong. And uh, for teachers, we're now on performance related pay, which I believe does not help because we are all also thinking about our jobs. And especially when you're talking to support staff, TAs, um, some of them are on minimum wage. And that job is incredibly important in terms of their livelihood and feeding their their own families and, and having their households. So 
it could be risky to tell the the senior leaders what they really think and actually it's better to comply and there, there's, there's that word again and I think as a, as a leader we really and it's it's hard it's not easy at all but we really have to be brave enough to think okay what are we really aiming for here are we aiming for a really focused learning environment or are we aiming for compliance and with that with no guarantee of learning and so to to really foster that community within your school you have to it's it's a horrible i'm sorry leaders but we have to be prepared to be wrong and we have to be prepared to listen and we have to create spaces in which it's safe for people to tell us because if people feel they can't approach us to say those things uh then we get the emperor's new clothes eventually you know we, we get into that space where everyone goes no no it's fine it's fine it's fine and then we wonder why so many kids are in detention and why we're excluding so many well surely something's not fine um, so yeah, in the book, there are kind of specific strategies that I look at, um, in doing that. And also I advocate spending a day in, in a pupil's shoes. That was one of the days I learned the most about behavior. How is one of your kids with the highest behavior points? What, what's school like for them day to day? Who talks to them? How are they spoken to? What is life like? And when I did this, oh my goodness, it was a secondary school, six period day. And this kid, not once during the day, did any adult say anything positive to him? Not once. There was lots of neutral things, take your bag off, get on with question three, you know, whatever it was. Most of it was negative. Oh, you've still got your coat on, you need to take it off, you should have done it by now. Um, you haven't done your homework, you'll be getting behavior points, et cetera, et cetera. And just the experience that has been one of my most exhausting days in teaching in my entire career following a student for a six period day who is known for their behavior and the way that they are treated the, the atmosphere the school the what school becomes the environment the culture no wonder you kick off i'd kick mm. off um and i i do talk about practical ways how to do that as well um in the school because as you as you pointed out obviously me a senior leader walking around following a kid is not going to work so I talk about um, <laughs> strategies so that you can kind of loosen that a bit uh, obviously it'll never completely go away but ways to do that and then also it's about thinking does it have to be you I mean that's a really interesting question as a leader isn't it does it have to be me or who who would be best placed to have that conversation with the lunchtime supervisors how do we how do we access our kids in care how do we access what their opinions are? Because statistically, children in care are more likely to be excluded. It's one of the hideous statistics of this country. You'll see in the Timpsons report uh, from 2000 and I'm going to say 19, but uh, my COVID brain. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right there. <laughs> yeah, it is 2019. Mm. Thank you. Um, but you'll see in there, I mean, the statistics around um, children in care who then end up excluded. There are also, of course, certain um, ethical demographics that are more likely to be excluded how do you how do you understand what behavior means and and what rules mean and what the behavior policy means in practice from those different perspectives and what i've seen what i know to be true is that doing that work is messy and it's hard and it's even harder if you are a leader who doesn't share those demographics with those young people you it's not your lived experience it's not my lived experience in care so what that means is i have to listen even more 
I have to listen even more. And that's partly something I did in the book, actually. So I knew that I wanted to write the book and, and you know, I wanted my narrative voice to be, to be um, kind of the, the drive through. But I also knew I wanted to interview people because I'm talking about topics that I know about, but it's not it's not my lived experience. And so at the end of each chapter, there's a small interview with who I consider to be an expert. And it was really important for me in those interviews to have so um, two, two out of 10, so 20% are um, adults who are care experienced. Um, I think two, yeah, 20, another 20% are non-white because what is it like to be uh, non-white? I don't know. Um, and then this, and also I've got a higher percentage of women being interviewed because that represents our workforce. And so it's really important for me that I brought in other voices of other educators so that I could learn, so that I could find out. And I mean, I'm just thinking of, I interviewed Pranav Patel, who um, is the founder of Decolonize the Curriculum. And some of the issues he talks about um, in terms of race and in our schools, I don't know that. And as a leader, we need to learn about that because that will make our that will make our lessons in our schools uh, more accessible for more of our students. And, and so, yeah, I, think, I mean, there's so much work to do around this and it's messy and, and sometimes we get it wrong. I talk about in the book, sometimes we get it wrong and it feels really horrible. Uh, the chapter I wrote around inclusivity, um, there were several times I, I work with uh, a wonderful woman, a dis disability activist and golden Paralympus, uh, as you do, uh, Elizabeth Wright. And she does a lot of work with schools around disability. And I, I was asking her to read this chapter so many times because I was so conscious that that's not my lived experience. But I want to be able to create a voice and a platform for those. And then finally on this, the, the forward to my book is written by young people who've been excluded. And yes, it's structured. I have, uh, you know, scaffolded it and, and there are certain questions they answer. But it, to me, that's one of the most important parts of the book. I don't know what it's like to be an excluded student in Britain right now. That's that's not who I am. And yet that's who my focus is. That's who the, who this book is for. At the end of the day, it's what all my work is for. And so it was so vital to me to bring those voices into the book. And that's how I work in leadership as well, or at least how I strive to work. And I am lucky to have some very honest colleagues who occasionally turn around and go, Adele, no, <laughs> you've got that wrong. You've got to sort it out. And I think as leaders, that's the thing we're always, we're always playing with, isn't it? Wow. Yes. And I think that is really, that is really powerful. That, that thinking about, the the lived ex experience of of the the young people themselves because you know as, as, as we were saying um a lot of the people who go into working in schools not all of them but a lot of people who go into working schools had a really great time at school themselves mm -hmm. and it would just not have occurred to them to yes. to you know um not do what was expected of them and and behave behave in the yes. way that school demanded and so then i think yeah and until you can understand or start to understand or, or hear from that person as to why they're behaving that way you know you'll just can you'll continue to to sort of dance dance around yes um, and I want to give a really poignant example from here so mm. there's also a statistic so if you are a child in care you're much 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 less likely to go into further education right so at that point when I was 18 and let's say my counterpart in care was also 18 
I was able to access further education because I had um, parents who supported me both financially and emotionally and washing and you know, all the rest of it. So I was able to access further education because I've accessed further education. I can become a teacher because I, and it goes along. Whereas that care experience, that uh, care experience child at 18, the state withdraws the support. It's a brutal cutoff. It's hideous. And so they can't access further education because they don't have anyone who could support them through it, either financially or emotionally or academically or whatever way. And so what that means, our system is created. It's it's biased. It's, it's discriminatory because it means to be a care experienced person in a position of power, in a position of decision making, is reduced significantly. And you can do this with any uh, minority demographic. I'm just using children in care because it often is very related to behaviour. And so what that means is there are hardly any school leaders who are care, care experienced. And yet a high percentage of our children who have behaviour needs, who are excluded, are in care. But they are less likely to become senior leaders. And you see how it goes around, around, around. And, you know, this is also the same with things like race, with things like um, children who are in the Gypsy Roma traveller community, et cetera, et cetera. And there's one story I want to share from the book. One of the people I interviewed, Rachel, she um, was care experienced and she has since worked for 20 years with SEMH pupils, pupils with social, emotional, mental health issues. And she now has one of the best jobs in the world. She's a canine assisted therapist. That is a therapist who uses dogs <laughs> to emotionally support these, these types of young people. And she shared a story with me that I, I feel is very important to share around this topic. She said she was in year nine and she remembers that the teacher was saying to her, Rach, you've got to, and giving her some instructions, Rach, you've got to, whatever it was. And she told me that she couldn't even physically hear the instructions because she was flashbacking about the abuse that she had received the night before from her biological parents that at that stage nobody knew about and so if we saw this from the outside from the teacher's point of view we see a kid being defiant not following the instructions and if we have no awareness of trauma if we have no awareness of what it might be like to um, be in a, a challenging home life or if we have no idea of you know we don't have any lived experience of this or we don't have curiosity about what it might be like then Rach in year nine at that point would have been punished. And then this is where I go really upset because I'm thinking, and, and this is a lot of the kids I work with because, I mean, I work with pupils who unfortunately have suffered the kind of trauma, abuse or neglect or adverse childhood experiences, the kind of things that we don't like to talk about, as in think of the worst thing a human can do to another human. And this has happened to some of my kids before the age of five and guess what? And I'm not going to swear, but and guess what? It messes up your behavior a little bit, mm. potentially, right? Not all, but potentially. And then our education system, the way that it is currently built, punishes them for having had that experience. And, and you can see, that, see why then there are fewer people 
who it's I mean it's not a rule at all there are exceptions but there are fewer people who have experienced behavior needs because of whatever reason who end up in leadership and so we, we just go around on this cycle where the things are managed by people who have a very different experience potentially to some of the students and then guess what it doesn't work so I think this comes back to your behavior policy it's about um, working out how do we connect with those experiences that aren't our own because until we do we're giving a pill for a, for a headache and treating everybody as if as if the root cause is the same exactly so and um i think it's it's been it's been really great to get um more of a flavor of um what what's in your it's in your brilliant book from this this conversation and it it's it you know the the voices really sing out and there's this this warmth compassion humor as you say um real kind of fellow feeling with teachers um you know it's not your fault <laughs> um really kind of have comes through but you know it it's it's uncompromising because you know some people will be confronted um, as, you, as you've just alluded to there with you know children with, with some really really um, horrible experiences in their background but it is very very practical and there's there's a lot there's a lot to to share there that, that, that is, that's very practical and you, you you try and think of things that people can do kind of immediately next lesson next week and and longer term so um, imagine that, that that I'm a teacher and it's it's the first first December we've got a good couple of weeks to go till till Christmas uh, I've got a class of maybe well let's say year nines uh, who I don't particularly oh, no. exactly who I don't, and they they're going to give up my subject that's that's always the classic isn't it not doing this next year um who i dread teaching um what are some things that i could try with them next session next week and long term oh my goodness talk about put me on the spot okay <laughs> so the thing that i would look at first is okay what is already working what has worked for them for them in the past what has engaged them in learning you're absolutely right i mean november start of december is for me, the trickiest time in education. Um, and so it's looking about, okay, what's already working well or what has worked well and how can we build around that? Um, it's also about, I think, getting that balance, isn't it? So hang on, no, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be strict. So we've got that's next lesson is looking at what's going well. And then the next lesson question is inviting you to say, okay, how can we bring more of that in? Actually, when we did space, they got really engaged. Now, space isn't the topic right now, but I wonder what was it about space that they enjoyed? What was it? Oh, hang on. Was it because we um, looked at loads of role models? Is it because um, they got to look in a telescope? Like, is there anything about when they were last working really well that we can bring in um, would be useful? My uh, next week, I would really invite you to... I actually wrote uh, part of my dissertation on this in my teacher training, um, looking at those spaces in between. We don't have to be 100% teaching, teaching, learning, learning, teaching, teaching, right? We need digestion time. Wasn't it, you're going to correct me now, is it Archimedes who had the Eureka moment in the bath? Yes. It was Archimedes. We need to give our children bath time no that, that sounds inappropriate but <laughs> use it as a metaphor folks um but we need to give them downtime we need digestion time and if you look at the top inventors the top writers the people who i've just read um the biography of sarah seager who's an astrophysicist working on exoplanets and um looking at like new life forms across the universe um the importance 
of downtime is the is the point in which the brain can digest and we can um, re-collaborate any new learning. So I would invite you, particularly around this wintry time, how can you have those downtimes? How can you bring um, the young people into a calmer space? Now, if you're working in primary or you're in a subject uh, like mine, like English, sometimes what I do is read a story to my pupils. Yes, even my 17-year-olds, I read them a story. Can you remember if you were lucky enough to have stories read to you when you were a young person, what did that feel like? Oh, wow. How did it make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's, a, it's a great way to sort of focus your imagination, your, your mind, but it's an act of kind of love and care that somebody's mm-hmm. taking the time to, to share a story with you, I would say. Absolutely. And particularly in secondary, I hear from students so much. They say, oh, yeah, we used to read this thing at primary. I don't read now. <laughs> but actually that so it's inviting spaces in this is my next week tip is to is to um find the moments where you can have those kind of slower calmer digestion times yes if you still need to tick a box because i know what it's like if you still need to tick a box that you're covering the curriculum of this that and the other it's totally doable um i would argue i've even seen kind of science teachers and pe teachers do this because there are so many fabulous um short stories now about a different like the top sports people or um, the 20 top inventors in the world. And there's some great stories about those people. You could bring that in. You could just read that story for 10 minutes and allow the class to, to calm themselves, to regulate themselves. Let's, let's be really clear of what we're up against right now. We've got holiday time. If we have a young person who is not in a positive home life, going into holiday time is I nearly saw bleep scary, Mm -hmm. right? It's really scary for them. And you will see that in their behavior. We've also got the fact that Christmas is coming. Most children in Britain celebrate that and, or in some way or another, at least. And there's a lot of excitement around that. There's also a lot of feeling inadequate. We know um, from a trauma informed perspective that um, holiday times can be very, very emotional uh, and triggering. On top of that, we appear to be in and out of a pandemic Uh, with unclear directions from our government about how that's going to affect us in schools and so the heightened anxiety from the staff let alone the kids so introducing those moments of calm so reading stories is one way Um, if you are in the environment this works I would do breathing and meditation with them I bring in meditation and uh, breathing work or mindfulness. I, I call it different things for different kids because some of them won't um, be open to it unless it's framed in a way that works for them. Um, bring in moments of calm, help the young people learn how to regulate themselves because then you're preventing, you're preventing challenging behavior. And then long-term, my invitation is how can you bring this for yourself? And this is going back to my chapter one, which is all around how do we keep our own boundaries How do we keep our own self-care? Because unless we do that, we burn out. Staff absence is huge right now, for obvious reasons, Um, December 2021. But how do we, as practitioners, ensure that we can be sustainable? And that might be looking for support. It might be looking for support in ways you've never had to look for support before. Um, And that's okay. Because if you are expecting yourself to either work with a big class who have behavior that challenges you or if you're working with a vulnerable young person who is on the verge of self-destruction 
and their behavior is is almost dangerous or is dangerous then your ability to look after yourself is going to make the difference of how you respond to that child's behavior or the class who are <laughs> causing you fun and games there we go that was next there's some lesson next week long term brilliant advice almost makes me wish i had some year nines to teach almost yeah <laughs> and also snogging what do you do about snogging oh so goodness. much snogging in year nine <laughs> <laughs> um no that was that was great super super practical helpful advice there and any any other tips that you'd like to share with with our listeners as we close or any any messages for folk mm. um, at this point in the year i think it's inviting um people firstly to have a rest where you can that's the most important thing I don't know about you, but this time of year, I feel like I just want to hibernate. <laughs> but also in terms of bringing in um, that support that you need, that's okay. And as I said, we might need support around behavior in ways we've never needed it before. You might be a teacher or senior leader thinking, well, I've been teaching for 20 or 30 years. I should be fine. No, there's a pandemic going on. We haven't been through this in our lifetime. You might need it in a different way. If you need a permission slip, here is a permission slip. Yeah. Um, so that would be my my kind of biggest one. And and allowing ourselves to work out how does behavior work for us individually um, in a sustainable way, yes, whilst um, staying within the behavior policy and and the culture of the school, there is still so much that you can do to make it work for you and your pupils. So it's it's giving yourself that that um, again, that permission to to play with what's working for your pupils and, and for you and there are lots of resources i have a blog with over 200 free resources on uh, that you can use and there's anything from uh what to do when kids are late <laughs> right over to things like how um leaders support themselves um around behavior and mental health and how to help students regulate their own behavior there's you can search this categories the different categories are things like leadership uh, specifically semh teenagers inclusion well-being you can go and have a look through any of those free resources and on top of that please do join my uh, email list where you'll get other things that come out uh, every week for free and then aside from that if you want to get more support more ongoing support then come and join my i'm going to swear again caroline <laughs> we give a shit behavior membership so this is the the online community that i support um and it's really come out of this need that i mean i go up and down the country supporting schools and i might be there for a day i might be there for a lucky it'll be kind of a short-term project with a school but i really feel like there's a need for teachers you know as, as we've identified most teachers only get about half a half a day's training on behavior back when they did their teacher training so this space is really about providing behavior support for you when you need it which isn't always when the inset day is coming and it's a, a community space where you can um, bring your issues you're having and um, learn about some more theories or some more practices or some more good practice around supporting behavior as well it's called we give a shit because it does go along with the book and um, there are, you know, I, I use those topics um, to go through as we go through the 12 months. And it is also a space for educators who do give a shit, because my philosophy very much is that my vision for education is one in which all young people are included and that behavior is flexible and it's relevant and it leads to positive social change. 
that's really my philosophy. And it's not that all the members in my community think the same by any means, because <laughs> we're all different, but they are all there because they believe that education um, should be accessible to all of our young people. And, and that as educators, it's our job to, to work out how to provide that. So if that um, sounds useful or inspiring to you, we have a giggle, we have a scream. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, very much like the book, very much put into uh, uh, the practical everydayness of it. Uh, then do come along. You can have a look on my website, which is adelebateseducation.co.uk. And of course, if you're a school leader listening and you want some specific support for your staff and your school and your pupils, then you can contact me as well via the website and um, book me through there. Lovely. And we'll we'll pop the, the links up on the, the show notes as well. Oh, well, thank you so much, Adele, for talking to us today. I feel like we've we've uh, we've covered a lot, uh, mm. but lots more that we that we could have said because it's such an important and vital topic. And I think the kind of everybody has that innate curiosity um, once mm. you start talking about about um, you know why children might behave in particular ways. And I'm, I'm sure a lot more people will be interested to learn more and pick up the book for themselves. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. <laughs>